Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's it going, Tony? It's going really, really well. How are you? It's going well with me, and I'll tell you what I'm stoked about is this hashtag we've been using and receiving all over the internet, that hashtag, I am reformed. I'm loving the edification. I'm like jazzed up, and I never use the words jazzed up, so... It's true. That's how excited I am. Yes. So, Jesse, why don't you share with us maybe like your favorite or second favorite I Am Reform hashtag of the week? I would love to. So here's one from Twitter from Joshua. He writes, finally finding peace in the fact that my salvation isn't dependent on my saying of a special prayer. I am reformed. I love that. Yeah, that's good. Um, I saw this one on Facebook. Um, this is from Carrie Gephardt, who is the host of Five for Fruit, which is on our Society of Reformed Podcasters. And he writes, um, this week I had to repent of my negative attitude and cynical attitude about learning biblical Greek. I lost sight of the privilege I have to study at a seminary in order to become better equipped to serve God's people. I lost sight of how knowing Greek will prepare me to better bring God's word to his people and I lost sight of how my attitude should reflect Christ's attitude who humbled himself even to death on a cross. So I ask God for forgiveness and for his help in moving forward in Greek class with an attitude that glorifies him and expresses my desire to become, by his grace, the best pastor I can be for the sake of his son and for his church. Hashtag I am reformed. Man, hallelujah. That's like some serious humility. He carried just yeah. associated the struggles of learning Greek with Philippians. Yeah. That that is a godly man there, and I, that actually really encourages me to take something like a struggle that is in study and turn it around to understand it in the more the broader like cosmic sense of what God is doing in His life. That's intense. Yeah, absolutely. So here's one more from Twitter. This is from Devin, and I love this too. The sanctification of the Spirit is relentless. The more I'm made into the image of Christ, the less I think I'm God. Hashtag I am reformed. That's awesome. That is so good. What I love about that is I've been thinking recently, sanctification is just this brutal process of God beating down my self-confidence. That's all it is. Yeah. Like in every way, every yeah. day. It's just, you are not who you think you are. You are not a bag of chips or all that in a bag of chips. And it, it's like a, a setting, right? It's like, I'm, I'm understanding that before I can even build upon a godly life, it's as if God himself has to tear down all this superstructure that I've built up so he can get back down to the foundation. So that that tweet really was just really edifying to me. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Now I want a bag of chips. Man, I listen, you don't you had me at chips. I, I don't need any excuse to get after a bag of chips. I can run a train on a bag of chips. Yeah. I mean, how many bags of chips do you think we go through over a week at Christmas time? Yeah. So yeah, people probably don't know, but when we all get together as a family, one of the things in my family that we just love to eat basically any time of the day is chips. And so my yeah. mother is always good to stock up on a plethora of chips and she gets a myriad of flavors and pretty much we just destroy them all. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's like, like- we can have two or three bags of chips open at one time. Like when we're all downstairs watching easy. TV and someone will be like, uh, can I open a bag of chips? 
And the answer is yes. Like, it's never like, what do you do when you, Nate? We already have three bags of chips open because one of those bags of chips is probably going to be empty in a second. So, yeah, let me just love, take this, this verse out of context. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. <laughs> and, and that applies to chips. Like, if, if, you, if there's sour cream and onion and you're rocking some, I don't know, like... Um, cool ranch Doritos and you want the sour cream and open those bad boys up. Like there's going to yeah. be no judgment. So I don't know. Last time at Christmas, I think, I don't know. Somebody mom, call us in, leave a message. Let us know how many bags of chips we went through, but I want to say like <laughs> five, five or six bags easily. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think probably more than that. Yeah. It's a she weakness. does that midweek grocery run too. And she gets like a whole nother stock of chips. So I think probably if we really wanted to, we could probably top eight or nine bags of chips in a week. You just laid down the gauntlet. I mean, there's there's nine or there's eight of us, so I, it probably isn't that hard to go through eight bags of chips in a week. You've been listening to the Reformed Chipcast. There you go. So, Jesse, it's Systematic Theology Week. Yeah, this is one of my favorite weeks of the entire month. And what are we talking about today, Tony? Well, before we dive in, I just want to say, um, last week we talked about the eternal functional subordination controversy. And we got a ton of emails and Facebook messages and voicemails. And um, I know I said I was going to play all of them on the show, but we're going to put that off until next week because we got enough of them that we think that it probably makes sense to do a follow-up show. So next time that we do a show, we're going to go through some of the um, sort of the key passages and just sort of talk through how the Orthodox historic position interprets them. And then we're going to talk about some of these questions, play some of the voicemails that we got. So if you left a voicemail or sent an email and you're not hearing it, don't smash your phone on the ground or anything like that because we'll get there. We just didn't want to get off of our rotation on systematics. EFS so will fair, be back Jesse? in the house. It will be. and Well, I mean, it won't be back in the house, but we're going to talk about it again because there is no EFS in this house. That's true. Sorry. As for me in my house, we will serve the <laughs> Lord, not EFS. As for me in my house... We will slam the door on EFS. Yes. This is the reformed taking verses out of context cast apparently tonight. <laughs> yeah, so, so this week, stay tuned this week for we're, that. Yes. This week we are talking about uh, soteriology. So we've gone all the way in systematic theology. We're almost to the end. I think we have ecclesiology and we have uh, eschatology and then tonight is soteriology. So soteriology is the study of salvation. Now, it's not as though we haven't talked about salvation things already. So we had an episode on limited atonement. We've talked about justification. We had episodes on mortification, um, which is part of sanctification. So tonight I wanted to sort of focus on um, what's called the ordo salutis and kind of talking through why it is that the steps, the, the ordo salutis is the order of salvation. And I kind of wanted to talk through why it's important for the, the, the steps that are there to be in the order that they're in and how that's distinct from maybe other branches of Christianity. Right. So when, we, tracking with me? when we're talking about the Ordo Salutis, as you said, we're trying to understand the steps that God takes to save us and what the logical order that he takes them in. But right. I think what I'd like to qualify first, even before we start that discussion, is that any kind of chat about this order of salvation still affirms that we have an omniscient God who does not need to do things in some kind of sequential order as we do, but there's still a logical order to the way in which God saves us from sin and all of its consequences. So we're, I think we're just trying to, it's not even just a way of systematizing because the Bible is very clear that this is not an abstract concept. The scripture itself speaks of salvation 
as being accomplished for us in some kind of divinely ordained progression. But yeah. it's just this way of organizing all events and realities in the process of salvation in the order that they show up in the individual's life. So there's a lot in this that leads us to understand how we are saved better and then just like rocket rockets us right into doxology because each of like these little elements themselves deserve an amazing amount of praise. They're so rich and they bring into our lives a better appreciation for what God has done and then how we ought to live in light of what God has done. But until I think we really start to describe them, it's it, it loses kind of, we lose focus and our spiritual lives are much hindered or they're kind of retarded, at least I think to some degree in their growth. It's also been helpful for me because the Ordo Salutis and understanding it, or at least being able to articulate it, is like being able to say to somebody that you have like a 30 second elevator pitch on what God has done in your life and why it's, why he's done it this way and why it works out. And this is where we're going to run into, whether we cover them or not, we're going to run into all kinds of different distinctives that set apart the Reformed tradition from any other theological tradition. So to me, this is like, we're, we're getting near the top. This is kind of some of the crown jewels of theology. So I'm really stoked about kind of getting after this. Yeah. And this is one of those subjects that um, sometimes sort of surprisingly generates more heat than it does light. For sure. Um, so I want to say right out of the gate that even within Reformed theology, there are some, there is some wiggle room and some disagreements in terms of how some of this stuff exactly plays out. And I'll try to call some of that out when we get there. I don't want to, I don't want to like front load that too much, but um even within Reformed theology, there's some variation. And then once you get outside of Reformed theology, there's greater variation. Um, but this is one of those things that, by and large, is not a first or even a second level issue in terms of Christian theology. That's not to say it's not important, but if you go back to the pyramid analogy that we've used, this is maybe like the third level or maybe even the very top of the, the pyramid. Right. That this really is... is the only reason you have to be really precise is because if you're not precise, then you might not be building on top of the foundation you've actually built so far. So um, I'll try to call some of that out as we go. But I want to read um, kind of the classical uh, text that this, at least the justification for why we even should do this, it comes from. Um, and it's from Romans chapter 8, um, starting in, uh, let's start with verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also justified, or called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So right there, what we have, more or less, is Paul giving an order of salvation. So he's talking about different things and the sort of the, the chain of events that happen as a person goes from being a non-Christian to being saved. Now, Paul here actually um, is pushing the Ordo Salutis all the way back into eternity past. So that's maybe the first distinction that we need to make is the difference between what's called the Historia Salutis, which is sort of the history of salvation, um, which by and large would involve the sort of the historical events that um, took place in history past that brought about the possibility of salvation or brought about salvation itself. The Ordo Salutis, more properly speaking, is the actual application of salvation to each individual person's life. 
So have you heard that distinction before, Jesse? Yeah, and that's a helpful one because it, it you need to kind of sort out the difference between what he's emphasizing was necessary prerequisites before there was could be actual application. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important for us um, to not collapse the Historia Salutis and the Ordo Salutis together. Because if we do, then you end up with some kind of squirrely ideas about like people being justified eternally. So that was a as as some of this theology was being hammered out, you know, in the post reform uh, Reformation era, kind of the Reform Scholastic era. What we ended up with was some people saying, "Well, the elect are justified in eternity past," and so they never were actually in a state where they were under God's wrath because they were justified in God's mind uh, eternally. And we have to be careful not to do that because that ends up in a situation where a person is born and they're never under God's wrath, which doesn't, it doesn't match up with what scripture has to say. Right. I mean, I really appreciate that God was so gracious, gracious to have Paul articulate all this out. I mean, one might say that what this could have been communicated in an entirely different way, but I love that he makes this chain of events. This is sometimes called like the golden chain, right? Isn't that sometimes? Yep. This passage is this passage. Yeah. And it's trying to kind of create these little links, I guess, pun intended, that bring us from a place to understand the work that God has accomplished on our behalf. And so even like as a setting point, like in this this whole environment, I love that Paul is clear that the, the salvation from beginning to end is the work of a gracious and sovereign God. And he began the process of salvation. He's going to see it through to the end. So God never, like I've said before, delivers up the baby to be left on the doorstep. Right. So there's no sense here that some of those who are chosen by God are eventually rejected or that there's something good within the center that moves God to have pity on them and to act on their behalf. Because I think even when we see this well-intentioned Christians, I've been this way sometimes where I think that maybe if I can come with enough contrition that somehow I can elevate myself to the place of the deserving poor. And so even before we get to the point of, well, what are the steps? If you just take a look at these, these like four verses by themselves, you see that what Paul's emphasizing to begin with is first, what's hard is that the good of which he's talking about is applied only to those who are called according to God's purpose. And that when God does that, it's all because of his work. And so even before we get into like the nuances of like, what are the steps and how do we order them and what happens coterminously and simultaneously and what happens sequentially or cumulatively, some of the main thrust here is that the good that we're talking about here is not just applied universally to all people or even all people confessing, but those whom God has called. And then second, that this is the work that God has done. And we, we boast in the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Yeah. And so this is actually this distinction between Ordo Salutis and Historia Salutis and the way that it works. This is actually um, one of the primary reasons why the Reformed have historically um, affirmed limited atonement. Right. So we've all we're all familiar with John Owen's double payment um, argument, which is actually like an outflow of this. But the reform have historically affirmed the limited atonement because God knew people in eternity past. He didn't know some nameless, faceless mass of people that would later be filled in. Um, he knew individuals whom he who he foreknew and predestined and then eventually would call. And so um, that's a main difference between Arminian theology and Reformed theology is that for the Arminian, the, the Historia Salutis is all very abstract and hypothetical, right? There, God, God sends his son to die on behalf of all people. He doesn't, he, he foreknows them in some sort of abstract sense, um, but he doesn't 
he doesn't necessarily determine who would come. So right. he doesn't, he predestines, but he predestines based on seeing what people would already choose. So the, the, the errors in their understanding of historic of Ordo Salutis actually pushed back to be confusions in the Historia Salutis. So I want to make sure that we're clear that the fact that we're distinguishing the two doesn't mean that we should separate the two. We right. can't really think or talk about the Ordo Salutis unless we've got a good understanding on the Historia Salutis. Because for the Reformed, those who would be called is not a open set. It's a closed, defined set that was determined in eternity past. And everything that happened in the history of salvation was was being done on behalf of those specific people. So the, the double payment argument, the idea that penal substitution can't work, which we talked about in depth in the limited atonement episode, that argument is an outflow of the Historia Salutis and the way the Reformed understand it. So taken by itself, the double payment uh, argument is is fine, but it's even stronger when you understand the historical groundings of it. Now, I haven't read Owen on that particular treatise. I haven't read that specific section. So I don't know whether he roots that in the Historia Salutis or not, but other sources in Reformed history have. I would suspect he probably does, but it's really that section in the Death of Death that kind of gets pulled out and sort of almost like pulled out of its context to be a standalone right. thing. But I would I would bet he probably roots it in um, in the Historia Salutis a little bit more robustly. Yeah, because when we speak, when you and I, I think, are talking about foreknowledge, it's not this sense merely that God knows what we will do in advance, so like this foreseen faith, but right. it's that God knows us as individuals in the full sense, like depicted in Psalm 139, you know, where God right. is said to know our thoughts before we can even think them because it's he who formed us in our mother's womb. So that is exactly, that. that's why to me there is a really distinct line between the Ordo and Historia, because there we're talking about something that is clearly defined and not applied it defined in like a, a cosmic sense in almost kind of a ontological way so yeah. it's, it's really important to separate that out and you'll find this is one of those subjects actually i really like talking to, about with other christians especially of kind of different histories and experiences because if you just ask even for somebody who's not familiar with the fancy latin terms which are just fun to throw around at parties i guess i don't know some <laughs> parties that you go to in your church um <laughs> it's it's great because it forces you will know right away what somebody believes when you ask like well how are we saved or like how, how yeah. not just like how did god save you but explain to me like so what do you think about how we're saved, how god kind of applies redemption and salvation to us it just opens up it's like this beautiful flower all my metaphors are escaping me that <laughs> we we get to see this wonderful entry point into somebody's life understand where their theology is really at so yeah foreknowledge yeah. is like is a big deal i mean if you drop either foreknowledge or predestined and you find both of them in that in those verses you've read that already starts to divide and bifurcate people. Right. And, um, this is one of those issues too, that a lot of Christians just haven't reflected deeply on. Yeah, exactly. And it's again, one of those issues. I've said this before where kind of our first instinct is probably wrong. And some of that comes from bad, um, bad catechesis that a lot of people have received in their past. Um, but some of it just comes from like our own sinful instincts that we are kind of the captains of our own destiny, right? So we think that like, well, I muster up enough faith. And once I muster up enough faith, then God will accept me. Uh, and so he's accepting me on, on the basis of faith and that's gracious. And so we get all these mingled mixed categories, but in actuality, um, if we get this wrong, then we've kind of like perverted our whole salvation. And it's very easy to turn this over from being grace alone through faith alone 
you know, by for the glory of God alone to something along the lines of like, well, I believe the right things. And so God had to save me. Right. Yeah. That, so this isn't, a good point. this isn't just some arcane technical thing. This has real feet in terms of how we understand our salvation. Yeah. Oh, captain, my captain. That's all that yes. came to my mind. As you said that. Yeah. That That's right on. And, um, this is one of those things where like predestination in particular is like a dirty word in some circles. Yeah. You can't yeah. use it. And when you do use it, especially like if you're going through like Romans like 9, 10, 11, uh, especially if you come from like an Armenian tra- tradition, you're just thinking, well, that's kind of like in a corporate sense, but it, it almost has this pejorative connotation. Like it's, it's overarching control and it's God enforcing on us. And, and now we become wills of robots and just purely responsive automatons. And so right. it wasn't honestly until like a couple of years ago when I read Ephesians 1, 5 again. And now that verse sticks with me because I realized that verse confronted me. The preposition in that verse, I think it's actually verse, the verse that precedes it, verse four, but the preposition in that so like undid me um, that I was shocked because that, that reads in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. So yeah. I love that even Paul there specifically to say like predestination for whatever you think it's like, let me tell you why God does it in love. It is an act of loving kindness, actually. So get your definitions right. Like get it around what's biblical first. So I've just yeah. totally digressed and interrupted our our own ordo salutis. But ordo podcastus. Yeah, ordo podcastus. But I just thought that was important to for me at least to remember that it's in love that God has done this. Yeah. Yeah, so once once we get out of the Historia Salutis, which um, we're not going to spend any more time on that, Mo- more or less speaking, in eternity past, God, um, because of his great love, he selected some according to the purpose of his own will. So for reasons that are mysterious to us, but not arbitrary, it's not like God was doing eeny, meeny, miny, mo. He had his reasons. We know that they're not um, they're not rooted in looking at us and looking at our foreseen faith. Once he has elected, then he um, sends uh, the spirit and the son and they do their uh, respective works in uh, bringing about the salvation of people. And then the spirit then applies that to each individual in time, in history, in a specific um, and I would say an an unalterable sequence. And that unalterable sequence has to do with the way salvation works. So that that application by the spirit in time to each individual person, that's the ordo salutis. So that's that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight is what is that order and why is it important for us to retain that order? Right. Yeah. Right on. So let's do it. So Jesse, I know you love when I do this. I do. What is the I'm first, already excited about what we are going to ask me right step. off the cuff. What's the first step in the Ordo Salutis? All right. So we it, didn't practice this. So we this did is not practice seat. this. And we, so can I throw out a disclaimer first? You can. Is that cool? So I can totally equivocate. This is something that you and I discussed. Like the Ordo Salutis can be like kind of shaky ground because there are strong convictions about the the order and the steps and what precedes which. So. I'm just, I'm just going out there. I'm, I'm going to do this. So I, for me, it would be speaking about the fact that, so we already kind of talked about, well, it depends where you start. So if I would say, if we're going to talk about election as being like historia, is that kind of where we've been? Would you say? Yep. So before creation, because of his sovereign good pleasure, God's going to choose some people to be saved. Um, for me, what comes next, like in my mind would be calling like that. God's going to summon people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel so that they respond to some kind of saving faith. How about Beautiful. that? 
beautiful. It's yes. like we are both reformed or something. Yeah, we are. So I'm going to go to the next passage I wanted to look at in Romans 10. Um, and I just need to find it real quick. I should have practiced this ahead of time. Great All right. Podcasting. So it, it um, starts verse 10, 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So this passage is not strictly speaking in ordo salutis. But Paul is saying that the first thing that happens in the order of salvation is an, uh, well, maybe not the first thing. The first things that happen, and sometimes they're in um, sort of concurrent times, is someone preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit inwardly calls. So there's this external call of the gospel and a matching internal call by the Holy Spirit. Now, um, this is one of those areas where people disagree. Some people would say that those two are kind of interchangeable in terms of the actual order they happen. Sometimes people will hear the gospel first. Sometimes they will feel this internal call first. But what's indisputable in Reformed theology is that both the internal and the external call are necessary for um, ordinary persons. So there's clauses in the Westminster Confession about people who are not able to respond to the external call. Um, Primarily, they're talking about people with severe mental disabilities and infants. But God, God works ordinarily through the internal and external call, and they work together. That's the key part, is that God always calls his people, and he always calls them through the preached word. It's it's not the case that, you know, we, we always hear about like, well, what about the poor guy who lives on an island somewhere and nobody could nobody ever preached to him? Well, we believe in a sovereign God, and if God had wanted someone to preach to him, someone would have preached to him. It's not like God can't send a missionary. So we have to be cautious because we don't want to fall into that trap of saying like, well, the people who haven't heard the gospel aren't accountable because that's not right. Reformed teaching, right? People right. are accountable to worship and serve not just a general idea of God, but God in Christ through the Spirit. That's what they're accountable for. And the scriptures are really clear on that. So, right. for instance, when we get to the day of Pentecost and Peter is like crushing it with his sermon, what's interesting is how different Christians interpret, understand the response of those who are listening. Right. Because some will say, well, look at this. These guys, they hear the sermon and they ask, well, what do we have to do to be saved? And isn't that proof that there's some kind of volition on their part that they're exercising? But we would say you're missing the point, which is what what does what precedes that volition? It is that God has effectively through the preaching of his of his word called them. And right. so they respond by saying, what must we do to be saved? So there, is, there are like prerequisites, which getting back to your point of why it's important to kind of think logistically and logically about how everything kind of accumulates on itself. But I mean, one, what's funny is, so those questions sometimes like bug me about like all the hypotheticals and not even getting into them now, but this idea that like we have struggled with them in our current time. So in like our current manifestation of all these hypothetical places around the globe, either real or otherwise, where we'd say like, what about this person? But we oftentimes, I don't see us weighing out the same kind of arguments in the Old or the New Testaments. Like what about the day of Pentecost? Everybody else that wasn't present uh, for for Peter or like, you know, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Like what what about all the other eunuchs? What about all the eunuchs? You know what I mean? So (laughs) it's just one of those things where we see this pattern that this is the way God works and we may not even like it. Like, I'll be honest, there are times that I don't like it, but if our only other choice is to say, well, God grades on a curve. Right. And I can't find that anywhere in the scriptures. I cannot either. Um, And so it's, 
it's important for us to recognize that, you know, when you look at the passage in Romans, how will they call on him whom they have not believed and how will they believe of him whom they have never heard? Paul's answer is not, well, God will hold them accountable for whatever revelation they've received. Right. What he actually says is, well, no, someone has to be sent. And so someone has to be sent to preach to them because faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So that's kind of the next step of the Ordo Salutis is the effectual call, which um, is actually what we're talking about in the acronym TULIP by Irresistible Grace. It's It doesn't work in the acronym, which is why it hasn't you know held. But the more classical language of talking about Irresistible Grace is the effectual call. And the reason that that call is effectual is because through that call, or as a response to that call, or however you want to phrase that, in relation to that call, God builds faith through the hearing of the word. Right. So that's that's kind of the next step of the ordo salutis, is God calls the individual, both outwardly and inwardly, and then he grants faith as a gift, and he does that primarily through the preaching of the word, through the preaching of the gospel. So when you and say so, grant, grants faith, let me, sorry, can I interrupt you? Yep, go ahead. I just have. So when you when you say grants <laughs> faith, are you inserting or making that like equivalent to regeneration, or are you splitting those two out? So some um, some reformed commentators would make that one thing. Some would say that the giving of faith and regeneration are the same thing. Um, I I want to say that they probably are cotemporal. They happen at the same time, um, but they they aren't exactly the same thing. So and I actually I. I go back and forth on whether or not I want to say that regeneration and faith um, are always even related in time directly. So right. my my own story, which I've shared a little bit, is that I um, I sort of suddenly became aware of my own sin um, after a confession of faith that was false. So I confessed at a big conference um, to impress a girl. And then over the next week or so, I suddenly found myself kind of disgusted with certain aspects of of who I was and how I was living. But then as I started to reflect, I looked back and like a couple months prior to that, I started to experience some of those same things. I was I was a ninth grade boy filled with ninth grade boy hormones, and I was suddenly really disturbed by the way that I was thinking about girls. That's not something a ninth grade boy usually does. And so I... I have to balance my own my own history and my own experience with my theology. Now we should never do theology based on our experience, but we should also recognize that sometimes our experience can be useful um, useful guides to point us in the right direction. So we come to scripture and we look at scripture, and we have to recognize that our experience may be false, but it also may not be false. So I say all that to say, in my own experience of the order of order of salvation. My regeneration seemed to have happened in the summer before I converted. So it seems like I, I developed, started to develop an awareness of sin and a, a disgust for my sin and a genuine sorrow and remorse at my sin. But I didn't quite know what to do with it yet. And so as I got, you know, we've said this before, as I joined God's people, as I, we talked about this in the first episode, as I started to be involved with God's people, I started to gain categories for that. And I started to understand what was going on. And through the preaching of the word, God gave me faith, and that culminated in a confession of faith and a commitment to him. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have a great answer, but like I said, Reformed 
theologians have differed on this. So I, I don't feel terrible that I don't have a great answer. But the important part is that regeneration precedes yes. faith. Yeah, exactly. So regeneration is not is not caused by our faith. It may be the cause of our faith, or it may just be a step that is uh, logically prior to our faith. And that's where the disagreement lies. But no matter how you slice it, regeneration must logically precede faith. Right on. That, and that's that, really important. That's a big thing that's going to separate this line of thought from almost any other right. le- theological opinion. Because I, I'm going to, I'll speak at least for myself, but I presume that we would be in firm agreement that since Ephesians 2 says that we are described as completely dead in sin, right? we're just unable to do anything to save ourselves from our dire predicament. So God must act upon us while we're still dead in order to save us from our sins. And that acting is a part of this process. It must proceed. It must proceed our faith. And and that's where we get into like the, the nuanced differences uh, about this. So, it, right. and that's been, I think my case as well is it's interesting that I like what you said about, I really hadn't thought about, couldn't there be like a, a temporal lapse between a time of regeneration and maybe the actual giving of faith or the acceptance, so to speak, of faith that is preceded by regeneration but now that I think about that, and again, this is why it's so great to talk about this. I think many of my good friends would have a testimony similar to that, that once they looked back, they saw that the Lord was far in a, in a way working in their lives in a way, like with, with basically without their permission, so to speak, to like start changing their mind and how they thought about things yep. when they weren't motivated on their own to think about right. things in different ways. So it's not like they were picking up self-help books and saying like, I feel like I'm a really awful person. Like I feel like my attitude is bad or I think about these things in the wrong way. But instead, through circumstances or otherwise, God was instead regenerating them uh, in a direction that was ultimately leading to faith. Yeah, absolutely. So the the disagreement lies only in the temporal aspects, right. how, how this plays out in time. There isn't any disagreement um, on any significant scale that regeneration precedes the giving of faith. And, that, and the reason for that is that faith flows out of a heart that is desiring the spirit, a heart that desires God. And so the, the regeneration is where God takes us and turns us away from our sins and orients us towards him. It's not quite repentance yet because we've not, we have not um, received that, uh, received that reality yet through faith. But God, God in regeneration takes our old sinful nature, our old heart of stone, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. So let me right? recap. Where, yes. we, where we've been so far. So, and then you can take us to the next step. So we've got kind of, if we're bridging over again to the starting part of Historia Salutis, we started with election, talked about then moving to a, to calling, then regeneration, moving into faith. So what would be next? Because we you just kind of gave a hint about repentance. Right. So once once the Spirit has given us faith, then then we make a confession of faith. And that confession of faith includes positive um, positive statements and positive thoughts, not positive in the terms of like warm and fuzzy, but positive in terms of like actual thoughts about who God is. Right. So we will, um, not perfectly, but we will confess that there is a God, that um, Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. We may not understand how that works yet. We will confess that we, that Jesus um, is our savior. We, and then we'll also include repentance so you're confessing that you are a sinner, you're turning from your sin, and that turning from your sin is is the repentance aspect of it. And so just saying you're a sinner, 
Okay, that's good. It's a good acknowledgement. But if you don't actually turn from your sins, then then you're not a Christian. You haven't converted. Right. And that's really important. So once we've confessed, we've made a confession of faith, we've repented, and we've trusted in Christ, we've, we've engaged our faith that Christ has given us, that the Spirit has given us, then we receive salvation. We receive justification through faith. And that, that difference between salvation by faith versus salvation through faith is really important. Uh, because I hear a lot of Reformed guys say, saved by grace, uh, saved by faith. And in, in a sense, that the choice of a proposition is not all that important. Because you could say saved by faith and mean saved by faith as the instrument of salvation, uh, rather than as the efficient cause of salvation. But if we're not careful and we talk about being saved by faith, sometimes we can make faith into a work of its own, right? So faith is not and never is the ground of our salvation. God doesn't save us because we have faith. Right. So the analogy that I've, um, the analogy that I've heard that I think is like all analogies breaks down, but is. Um, is a good analogy is let's pretend that I want, and this happens sometimes because people don't like to take money for gas or for whatever. Sometimes you want to pay somebody for gas and you, you say, here is $5 for gas. And they say, no, I'm not going to take your money. (laughs) And sometimes you actually, I've done this in the past where you actually grab their hand and you pull open their fingers and you put the money in their hand and you say, you're taking the money. And then you close their hand back up on the money. So what faith is, is that open hand. Right. And so um, some some traditions, Arminianism particularly, will say faith is that open hand, but I'm the one who has to open my hand to God. Right. So once I open my hand to God, he's going he's gonna to give me salvation. In reality, and in the Reformed theology, what it is, is God pries our hand open by giving us faith. Mm-hmm. And then that open hand of faith is what receives salvation from God. It receives justification from God. But it doesn't receive justification um, as the next step. We can't skip union with Christ because that's the most important. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. That's the most important part of our salvation is union with Christ. Right. Right. And the reason for that is that all the other aspects, all the other parts of the Ordo Salutis happen and only happen in union with Christ. Right. Right. That's a controversial statement. It is a controversial That's statement. Probably as controversial as we're going to get tonight, I hope. But that can be a controversial statement. Um, so Mike Horton, who we all know is one of my my like top one favorite theologians. Like top we've one we've, right. Favorite. We've repeated that a ton. Um, he had a he had a back and forth with Lane Tipton, and and actually, if you listen to it, they weren't even really disagreeing on all that much. But there are some voices within Reformed theology that want to say justification needs to be kind of the center of our salvation. Mm-hmm. And Mike Horton wouldn't say this, but um, you can't have justification without union with Christ. That's the problem, right? And so the faith we are brought into union with Christ by faith. So with that open hand, we receive salvation, but we only receive salvation because with that open hand, we embrace Christ. And that's where our union begins. In your example, it took me a second to realize you were talking about reimbursing somebody for gas. Because at first I was like, what is this gas station where they just won't like they just won't take your money? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm talking about reimbursing. We don't want your stinking money here. Just we don't just want your the money. Gas just take the car. gas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because again, what we need to understand what precedes that context. And that is it's a dead hand. It's not a hand that can reach out because even what you described there is is almost borders on like semi-Pelagian anyway. Right. 
so that, you know, I, I am able to do this on my own and somehow I'm going to you know come before God and just say, here I am, God, and I have open hands now. Give me the gift. And right. so it's in this step of the conversion where I, I really feel like the, the quintessential sinner's prayer really falls down because if, if yes. let's just say you're really trying hard, well, in a well-intentioned way to speak to somebody, to preach the gospel, and you follow this conscription that we've kind of grown to love and admire where we say to the person, are you a sinner? If we can get that person to say, yes, we think, let's move on. You, you need Jesus then. You, need, you recognize that you're a sinner. But the real question is, how do you, by the power of God, feel and understand your sin? And that person right. may be like, I have no problem. Like, yeah, I'm a sinner and I'm totally fine. Right. And, and that's the problem is what we're talking about here is it's much deeper than just getting somebody to say, well, yeah, I realize that I've done things that may be outside of what God's moral boundaries. It's about this confession and that unification that, that brings us into the next place. Right. So, um, so faith as this kind of open hand, another analogy is kind of that faith is the instrument that we grasp, we grasp onto Christ once he's already grasped onto us. Right. So, um, if you know, union with Christ, I've heard it, I've heard it explained as an embrace, right? So Christ grabs a hold of us and by faith we grab a hold of him. And so it's this mutual embrace that happens, but the embrace of Christ on our lives comes first. So there's effectual call. That effectual call kind of gives way to regeneration and faith as the, the outward call produces faith in us by the Spirit. And then once that outward call has produced faith, Christ grabs us and we grab him back through that faith or by the, with that faith. I just got this really weird trapeze metaphor in my mind. Is that bad? No, let's have it. <laughs> no, well, just in the sense that this idea of like, if you're doing a tra- trapeze act, like I don't even know why I'm qualified to give this example, but if, if you're doing one of those things, like, you know, like you're, you're trying to jump onto somebody else's arms. Like it's, it's as if Christ is holding us. We may, gra- we're grabbing back, but it's only because he holds us first that we're even right. able to be within reach essentially to grab. It's, it's really his strength. It's his command. It's his sovereignty. And, you know, for me, regeneration has always been this idea that God is secretly as it were, imparting the spiritual life to those who have been saved. And because of that, then we are able and willing to respond to the gospel and then place our trust in Christ. And this is one of my favorite parts, honestly, the Ordo Salutis, because I just feel that the scriptures are so plain and spoken about this because they'll say like the natural man cannot see these things, cannot even discern them. So even Nicodemus is like just totally confused about this. And so I don't understand how we can think that if I'm just smart enough, I read enough books, if I hear the right sermons, or if I can raise myself to a place of giving intellectual assent, that somehow that's going to mean that I can step forward and say, here I am, God, I'm ready for you. Um, we, we never find God. Um, in fact, you know, th- there's no such thing as like, isn't it oxymoronic to say like there's seeker sensitive churches when the scriptures right. are clear that no one seeks after the Lord? So yeah. I, I kind of think this is just a wonderful encapsulation of a truth. I get it's a hard truth. I'm not denying that because like you said, we'd like to make sure that we are in control of everything that's happening. And I think it makes us feel better when we look around in our world to think that, well, everybody's getting the same opportunity, but that's just not the case. Yeah. So this is going to be um, the part of the show where if we have any Lutheran or Arminian or Roman Catholic listeners, which I don't, I don't think we do, but if we do, um, they're probably going to stop being our listeners. And the reason I say that is because I think that all other systems, I'm going to use this word tr- with trepidation. I think they bastardize the gospel 
by moving the focus away from union with Christ and onto other benefits. So the, 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 the benefit and the beauty of Reformed theology, and I've said this in the past, is that we get Jesus. Amen. Right? And so what happens in other traditions is we separate the benefits of Jesus, the benefits that Christ gives us, from Christ himself. So here's an example. In Lutheranism, justification comes first, and then everything flows out of justification. So you are given faith and then you're justified. And then once you're justified, you get union with Christ, you get sanctification, you get the other benefits of salvation. The problem with that is that justification now is the primary benefit of salvation. The legal relationship, the legal grounds of the relationship you have with Christ, rather than the relationship itself, is the head benefit of salvation. In Reformed theology, I get Christ and then Christ gives me all these blessings. He justifies me. He is my Lord and my Savior, and so my Lord and Savior justifies me. In Lutheranism, I'm justified in a sort of an abstract sense, and then because I'm legally justified, then I can um, then I can be in union with Christ. Or in Arminianism, I'm not even really sure. It's sort of like a get out of hell free card. Is that what what I get when I turn from my sins? Is I don't have the legal penalty of sin anymore, and so I I get to be with Christ, but. Again, it's flowing out of that legal forensic thing right. rather than out of the union with Christ. And that's even so I wanna, more complicated and confusing because then we'd have to speak about like most Arminians are going down the ground of like you know, governmental theory of atonement and how right. like they're probably saying honestly that Christ's death was sufficient for all but efficient for those who choose. So to me, that's even right. more convoluted. Sorry to interrupt your train of thought there. No, no, that's fine. And and. The, the Reformed folks who want to um, try to recover, sometimes they're called the imputationists. They want to try to recover double imputation and justification as the primary benefit of salvation. And most of the time, it's the primary benefit flowing from union with Christ. So it's not as though there's this hard divide uh, in Reformed theology where there are those who say justification precedes union and those who say justification follows union. Almost everybody that I've read says justification flows from union. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to say union with Christ is is its own benefit, but it's not a benefit that happens in a vacuum. Right. And I would affirm that. But even if it did, if I had a real union with Christ, a real fellowship with Christ, even if that meant only during this life could I have that fellowship. And after this life, I still had to face all the legal consequences of my sin it would still be worth it right to have even temporarily have that sweet fellowship with the Lord. It would still be worth it. And it would still be its own great reward apart from the stuff that flows out of it. So that's what I want to emphasize when I say that is that we should never think that union with Christ fellowship with our creator, right? I mean, union with Christ is a great technical term, but if you really think about what that means, it means that we get to have sweet fellowship with Christ, right? There's no, there's no, it's no mistake that the scripture uses marriage language in relation to this relationship, right? Christ is united with the church as the groom and the the bride. Um, And that relationship extends into individual relationships too. I'm not the bride of Christ by myself, but the fact that that relationship is described that way has something to say about my relationship with Christ, right? It's not a cold legal relationship. It's a warm 
loving, intimate fellowship that I have with Jesus. And that is, that is enough in itself to be um, worthy of praise. The fact that there's more is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. That was almost infomercial, but you're right. Like but the, there's more at the end of the day. What we want is to walk in the cool of the garden intimacy right. with our creator. That's what we want. Right. And I, yep. I like that emphasis because I think the way we're talking about it, at least my conviction is this is setting up Christ as preeminent. It, it is weird in a way to put the benefits that are conferred by the one who gives them ahead of the one who gives them. And so yes. here we're setting him up right. So we've got election, calling, regeneration, faith, conversion, justification. What's next? Well, union with Christ and then justification. Sorry, union with Christ in the justification right. with, through the conversion. Right. So so union with Christ happens. And then from there, it's kind of a fork. And all of the rest of these benefits are happening concurrently. So sometimes we think about justification and sanctification as though justification has to come first and sanctification has to come second. And it's usually true. Sanctification can never happen before justification because you can't um, you can't make holy a dead person. Right. You Christ. God, God isn't going to renovate us before he fixes our legal problem. Right. right. But justification happens and sanctification uh, justification happens and has ongoing realities, right? It's a justification is not a point in time. It's a new state of existence. Yeah. So it's not that we were justified at a point and then justification stops. Justification begins and it will never end. We are always being justified, not in the sense that our justification grows, but in the sense that Christ is and perpetually will be our mediator. He will always be standing in our stead, holding back the wrath of the, of the father on our behalf. That's not to say that he's suffering the wrath of the Father, but it's his ongoing intercession that is continuing to hold it back. Continuing to satisfy the Father is Christ's joyful intercession on our behalf. Right. So it's positional and it's progressive. And exactly. that makes me think of like 1 Corinthians, which provides kind of like a, a similar kind of order salutis in a way. This is like 6.11 says, in such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of God. So if all those washed are those who are being said to be sanctified, and that would make sense because those regenerated by God's spirit are now able to be set apart for God's holy purposes. And then they right. can begin the lifelong process of dying to sin and rising to a newness of life. But that for me is like a great reminder that it is something brand new. We're talking, like you said, a new state of existence. That's not being hyperbolic. That's what's right. like for real happening. Right. So once once we're justified, we stay in this state of justification forever. We never become we never get past justification. But at the same time, there's a parallel track of sanctification that's running and sanctification. We did a show on we did an episode on mortification and we talked a little bit about vivification as well. But sanctification consists in dying to our sins, crucifying the old self and then also walking in newness of life. So it's both of those things. But that happens alongside of our justification. We don't graduate from justification and then move on to sanctification. We are justified and will be just, will stay justified, and then we are sanctified until we die. Right. We'll never, we never get fully sanctified. Sorry, John Wesley, but we never finish that process <laughs> this side of Earth, right? And sorry, uh, John Paul II. I don't know Benedict, Francis, whoever your name, the Pope is. Um, that process doesn't continue past death. Right. So on one on one sweeping statement, we've excluded the Arminian tradition, 
particularly Wesleyanism, that wants to say sanctification can be completed prior to death. And we've also excluded uh, the Roman Catholic position that says sometimes, most of the time, sanctification continues after death in a place called purgatory. Right. Right. So you are being sanctified until you die. And then once you die, you are glorified. Right. So you could think of glorification as sort of the final state of sanctification. That's the end result of sanctification. Right. Because finally, God is going to remove all trace of sin from Christian and give him her resurrected body. So this is why it's so important to not only just know what you believe, but know what the scriptures say, because just what you said there without getting off in a huge rabbit trail at this point, like think about the profound difference of what it means to believe that sanctification continues after death. Think about about what what harm that has caused, like in terms of like the, the Catholic church and their understanding of prayer and uh, kind of leveraging gifts and almsgiving on behalf of others and departed souls and saints. Like, think about all that craziness. I mean, that's a yeah. real thing. And people hang their lives on that kind of thing and waste an enormous amount of effort in this life on those who have already died over a complete error in the order of salvation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think it bears saying that um, glorification is mysterious to us. Yeah. Right. And even, even the apostle Paul, um, you know, there's a a section, I think it's in Corinthians where he, he's answering a question that has been sent to him of what kind of bodies will we have? And he basically says, I don't know. It, it, it'll be the same, but it'll also be different. It'll be how like you bury a seed in the ground and a plant comes forth. It's the same, it's the same thing. There's a continuity of some sort, but it's also radically different. And that's the best that I can tell you. And where I want to, where I kind of want to make a statement is that I personally am not a hundred percent certain whether glorification properly said happens before resurrection or after resurrection, because in our anthropology discussion, we talked about how a human person is the unity of a spirit and a body of material and immaterial components. And you're not a whole person. You're not a complete person if you are just a spirit or just a body, right? We're never just a body. Um, when we die, our spirits and our bodies are separated. And our, as best we can tell, our, our personality or our personhood is attached to our spirit. But it's an incomplete existence. That's part of the tragedy of death is that you are in this incomplete state. So I'm not entirely sure we can say that we reach a state of final glorification until we're reunited with our bodies in the resurrection and we're made whole again. So that's where I think the Ordo Salutis sometimes has a little bit of wiggle room is that just like we might talk about um, how I'm going to be in heaven with God for the, you know, once I die, I'm going to be in heaven with God forever. Well, that strictly speaking isn't true. We're, we're not going to be in heaven forever. There's going to be a new earth and we're going to live as resurrected saints on the new earth. But that's a way of speaking. So I think sometimes when we say glorification, I'm going to die and be glorified. We have to recognize that that final glorification is also tied to the resurrection. Right. So the Ordo Salutis con- includes resurrection. It includes the reuniting of our body and being raised to the permanence of new life. Um, which I think is probably glorification. So I would say glorification is after resurrection. Some people will say that it's immediate upon death. I, I don't know where I fall down in there. And, and to be honest with you, I've I've seen a lot of discussion and it doesn't look like this is actually something that really has been explored all that much in the Reformed tradition. So I don't have a lot of 
sources to talk about. Maybe I just haven't encountered them yet. But what do you think about that, Jesse? I, I'm pretty much where you're at on that, but maybe I came into it in a different way. And that was just the way that I've understood it and read about it was just that glorification would be the zenith, like the absolute pinnacle. And to me, that can't happen until basically after right. resurrection. Like I said, it's a, it's a complete unification. Like it's a, it's a complete return to the way things were and sh- in the garden and should be now. And so we know that there is kind of, uh, there's a lot that has to happen before that takes place. And so I, I would right. say that the full the fullness of glorification, if that makes sense. It, yeah. Maybe it happens in degrees, but the fullness of it, all of its radiant glory is going to happen after the resurrection. At least that's what I'm stoked about. But either way, it's going to be awesome. So yeah, I'm down yeah. with that. So uh, so that's the Ordo Salutis. I mean, I know that that was kind of a shotgun approach and it, it's a complicated subject. So I don't want to make it seem like it's simple. I mean, even even during the course of this podcast, I think we kind of got turned around a couple times yeah, and had to sure. like re-navigate. But it would benefit you as a Christian to take some time and understand this process. Because if you get it wrong, then you are t- you're taking salvation and putting it on its head. So as I said, if faith precedes regeneration then what you have is dead people believing in Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Arminian position goes. They have faith comes from a living person who's sick, but not dead. And so once there's enough faith, then you get the medicine and you get better. That's Arminianism more or less. Right. You Well, a dead person can't take medicine. And so in Reformed theology, a dead person has to be brought back to life. And then he can, then he can receive salvation, justification through union with Christ. And so it's really important to really get at this. Right. I totally agree. I mean, that's a difference of speaking between like rehabilitation and regeneration. And especially if you're the Christian who takes seriously, as we all should, the great uh, commission, then this also influences like how we pray, how we go out and witness, whether we go with strength or we kind of go with fingers crossed, hoping that the message is going to be powerful enough or poignant enough or however, whatever way we need to deliver it. So it's been freeing for me to consider each of these points. And as I said at the beginning, it leads me to like a lot of doxology. Like you could just spend several days just meditating on each one of these little phases and just be enveloped by the goodness and the sweetness of God that he'd come and pursue us and do this mighty work on our behalf that we couldn't do. Again, to think that we were dead, actually even worse than dead, we were dead and we were the object of God's wrath. Yeah. And what he did for us was bring about this mighty work that brought the unification. And so to sit where I am now and just to consider how great God is and how small I am and how I don't deserve any of that, but get the benefits. The first of being, you get Jesus. Like we should just say that over and over again, this podcast, like with, with, with Christianity, you get Jesus. The real deal is you get Jesus and there's nothing better than that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to put a link in the article um, or in the show notes for this. A couple years ago, Tim Challies came out with a really great poster of the Ordo Salutis. Um, there's a couple things that I might um, phrase differently. He doesn't have union with Christ, for example, on there at all. Um, but it's oh, it's Challies. kind of, well, I think he's including uh, union with Christ in one of the other steps. So he just doesn't have a call out specifically, but it's a good poster and it kind of explains each of the steps. So I'm going to put that in the show notes because even if you don't 
dig into this all the way. It's important to get the broad outlines. Yeah, exactly. The, the nuances are important, but if you if you have a broad understanding of the major steps and the order they come in, it can really pay dividends in understanding our salvation. And when we understand our salvation, that's one of the ways that I think God preserves us in the faith, which is a, a step that uh, Chalice has on here is the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints. Understanding where our salvation happens and how it happens is a way that God uses to preserve us in the, in the faith. So to, to go back to the Romans passage that we read earlier is we can know, and, and you, you nailed it earlier, God roots the fact that as Christians, we can be confident that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And the reason because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. That's the reason why Amen. we can know that God works for good. So when you are having, you slip back into that sin, that, that besetting sin that you have not been able to beat, you can know that that sin, if you are one of God's elect, if you are called according to his purpose and you love him, Falling into that sin is for your ultimate good. And God God allowed that for your ultimate good. And he will bring you through it to glorification. You can't get there from an Arminian theology. If my faith is the grounding for why I'm saved, those moments where I lack faith means my ground is incredibly shaky. Right. But if instead God's unilateral act of regenerating me and making me a new creature in Christ is the ground of my salvation, it's a whole different game. Amen. That's what I'm talking so, about. We're having some church up in here. It's all about assurance. Yes, it really is. There's no better way, I think, to wrap it up than that. Yeah. So the only other way we'll wrap it up is how do people get a hold of us? Well, Tony, I'm so glad you asked that. I was prepared to say people can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at reformedbrohood, or you can call us at 607-444-2767. Bros. So leave us a voicemail or even better, if by listening to this, you've gotten fired up as I have and Tony has. Again, you cannot see his hand motions, but he is, he's giving me the hashtag support. <laughs> he was gesticulating wildly in his excitement for all the good stuff we've been just talking about now. So if you're fired up too, please continue. We love to see the edification of these people uh, loving on each other by sharing what God is doing in their lives by using the hashtag, hashtag I am reform. So keep that up. I love it. Absolutely. Well, I think that just about does it. So until next week, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.